Hello, welcome to Stories from the Earth. My name is Jennifer. I'm here with my co-host, Ellen. Hello, everyone. This is episode 21, woohoo! Um, and we have a very special guest here today. We are here with author Byron Ballard. Hi, everybody. So Byron is an amazing educator, a folklorist, and a writer, as we said, who was born here in Western North Carolina and has served as a feature presenter at Sacred Space Conference, Southeast Wise Women's Herbal Conference, Glastonbury Goddess Conference by Taking It Global, uh, spoken at Harvard and the University of NC. She is senior priestess and co-founder of Mother Grove Goddess Temple here in Asheville, North Carolina, and the Coalition of Earth Religions for Education and Support. She writes a regular column for Sage Woman Magazine and is the author of several books, one of which we'll be focusing on today, which is her latest, Roots, Branches, and Spirits. Byron, any other, uh, any other lovely information you can uh, need to share? Isn't, isn't that enough? Isn't that enough? <laughs> Oh, it, we are sitting in the middle of spring planting season. So I'm just, I keep looking out the window like, has it stopped being so windy? Because i got to get that stuff in the ground. So that's the big thing right now for me is getting the garden in. That's my love. Tis the season. And speaking of plants, I love your use of the trillium. I, that was like the first thing I noticed um, about the book when I opened it, how you had the little picture of the trillium at the tops of each of the chapter headings it's so cute oh the oh yeah that's beautiful and that was not my decision they did that for us and i mean for me and i was so thrilled because they could have done any kind of a silly dingbat to to intro the chapters but trillium is so important that yeah the, the only one they could have picked that would have been better would have been bloodroot because i love that as a spring yeah. ephemeral oh, gorgeous you mentioned your garden. I just wanted to ask you real fast, like what, um, what is, what are you, what do you plant, what do you plan on planting this, uh, this year? Uh, well, I start gardening as early as possible with the things that you can plant really early. Normally, I would have planted onions in that we usually have a pretty warm spell in January, and I put in onion sets then, but I put my onion sets in in November. So we have been eating onions, and we're eating onions now, but in the in the summer garden which is the first garden that i plant i have i'm going to go from row to row and just let y'all know some of the yeah. stuff three rows of onions so i did put onions in but a little bit later because i'm obsessed with onions i love them so much then i've got uh, my peas are coming up and i planted uh sugar snaps this year and also um some other like oregon peas oregon pea pods uh beets two kinds of radishes, carrots. And then once all those were in and starting to come up, I put in the brassicas. So I've got in some really beautiful purple cauliflower that I got over at Burton Street in their garden. I've got cabbages and uh, broccoli. All of that is in, plus strawberries, because you know strawberries are, they're perennial, so they were in already. So I've already started thinning all that. And then I've got a smaller kitchen garden closer to the house and it's got bok choy, uh, chard, lettuce. The one lettuce that's up and is being thinned is the black-seeded Simpson, which is one of my favorites. And um, 
and that's where the onions from November are. So we're eating those too. And I put a basil plant in the other day. I was glad to get that started, but it's going to need some protection if it gets real cold again. Yeah. What kind of um, space are you working with? I'm always curious just because, you know, sometimes people think that they're limited by not having acres and acres, but you're in, in the city, right? So you, you probably yeah. got more of a standard allotment and you're still growing well, all that stuff. Yeah, we have a pretty big lot for a city lot because we're in the old mill village for the cotton mill. So um, we're not in one of the little mill houses, but in one of the larger houses. So it's a it's a good plot of land. But we have such a problem with groundhogs down here that mm. we've had to fence everything in. So we have those little gardens divided up. And the, the one with all the stuff in it already, the brassicas and all that, oh, it's probably maybe 40 by 40 yeah, or nice. 30 by 30, something like that. It's a pretty good size. And then the little kitchen garden is small. It's maybe 12 by 12. And then we have an Italian garden where I usually just grow Italian stuff, that, but now it's full of asparagus, which is wonderful. And that one is even smaller. That's like an eight by eight garden. And then I have outside beds uh, of things that groundhogs won't eat. Like I'm grow, I grow okra out there and that's not going in the ground yet. It'll go in probably this week and tomatoes. So they grow not in a fenced area because the groundhogs at this point, I'm knocking on wood. The groundhogs, <laughs> the groundhogs have not eaten those yet, but yeah. So I've got little patches of gardens everywhere. And then a, a bunch of perennials in the front yard and some big good shrubs and flowers. Awesome. So, yeah. Very much a very much a grow food, not lawns scenario, sounds like. Oh, I, I hate lawns. I hate <laughs> them. I hate them. And I was doing interfaith work years and years ago when uh, there were a lot of women pastors in some of these big uh, Christian denomination churches. And all of them had this dream of digging up the big front yard. Because, you know, they have these huge front yards, these these yeah. uh, Protestant churches. And usually it's just a lawn and they have to pay so much money to have somebody take care of it. So the woman who was at Grace Covenant Presbyterian of Merriman. Yeah. I yeah. I can't recall her name right now. She was like, I just want to dig this whole thing up and put in food. And by golly, a couple of years later, somebody came in as a volunteer and said, why don't we make this into food? And now you all know it's got, there's just that beautiful garden. I keep wanting to sneak in there at the end of the season because they have such beautiful collards. And it's just like a mile of collard greens. And I just think, <laughs> now would those Presbyterians miss just a few collards? <laughs> Maybe, but, but they'd be okay with it. <laughs> I think they would. And I bet if I gave him a call, their chief gardener, and said, my collards didn't do good this year. Can I have some collards? He'd go, yes. And in exchange for that, you can come and weed part of his garden, <laughs> which I would Fair's be more fair. than happy to do. Honestly, I, I think relocalizing food is vitally important. I think community gardens are vitally important. And there are just, there's too many places in this town where the city does a poor job of maintenance. And if they would just, if we could get past the, oh, but what would happen if somebody got hurt on this lot? They'd sue the city. If we could get past that so that we were just growing food everywhere, 
there's a I'm gonna go down a rabbit hole with you for a second. There is a program in England and it's in other places too, but it began in England in a town in Yorkshire called Todmorden. And that is spelled T-O-D-M-O-R-D-E-N. And it was a, it was a wool town. And then, you know, the wool industry failed. Um, and they did this amazing thing where they decided they were going to use every bit of, of person uh, of, of land owned by the city, by the city, by the village, the commons. They were going to use the commons. And then everybody who wanted to in their own yard would um, monocrop. And so the whole town is you walk through this town and different stores have done big raised beds. The example I always use is the police department because we have such a problem in this country and in that country too with, with policing and interfacing with police and all of that. There, the police department has put in three big raised beds right in front of their building. And the year I was there, because I went over to, to visit, they had all carrots. And the whole idea is that you go out in the morning with your basket. Oh, my and gosh. And you want to you get stuff for salad. So you go, you go down to Jennifer's house. And Jennifer has those beautiful, beautiful lettuces. And you pick some lettuces. And then, and then you go down to your house and you get some onions and then you go to the police department and you pull some carrots. And so it's like this mini monocropping and it has been so successful as program that it has moved to other villages in, wow. in England. And in Todmorden, it was so successful that they now have, uh, they have a farm just outside the village bounds and they're they're raising livestock when i was there they were putting in a pond for fish they have these big beautiful greenhouses and it's just and it's an extraordinary thing you can look it up as incredible edible todmorden and there's a, it's the incredible edible program and wow. it's just it's extraordinary i don't know how we could do that here because we don't have the same relationship to the commons because mm -hmm. in, in our sense of it, it's not, it's not like city County Plaza is owned by the people of Asheville. Mm -hmm. It's like the city will kick your butt off of it. If you, <laughs> if you would dare go up there, can you imagine going up there with one of those garden weasels? <laughs> and I'm just going to put in some tomatoes. That'd be okay. Wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. Somebody from parks and rec, would be on you and your butt would be in jail in five minutes guaranteed yeah that's why in our country you have to you got the gorilla gardeners that have to kind of fly yeah. under the radar just to get anything in and then hope that it hope that it stays there it's such a shame i know there's a constant battle here in Asheville with the tiny little um bit of food forest in the park uh down near city hall i forget the name of the park off the top of my head but it's got a lot of fruit and nut trees in it George Washington Park, I think, something like that. Well, uh, Washington Carver. Yeah, yeah. So they, yeah. they just constantly have a battle of like, are we going to rip all those trees out? No, don't rip the trees out. We're going to rip the trees out. No, don't rip the trees out. Yeah. Like, why? Yeah. Just leave them alone. Just leave them alone. What is wrong with you? <laughs> the trees. Uh, don't you have enough to worry about without worrying about established <laughs> nut trees? Hello? Yeah, Hello? I mean, that's <laughs> Hello? 
that shouldn't be a problem. That's that's food. It, like, it, should, it shouldn't. In fact, we have a in my neighborhood. We have a community garden that we negotiated with the city about, and we um, and we have you know paperwork and all that stuff. It was a real negotiation with the understanding that at the point where the city decides that that real estate is more valuable to them sold, then we'd have to take everything out. Wow. Everything. Uh. Now we're growing in raised beds. And, and so if that, if, and when that happens, cause we all know how the city is mm -hmm. when that happens, uh, we will send teams of people in there and we will take the soil too. We'll take it all. So none of it will be lost, but it's wonderful. And I, I wish the city and I hope the city and I'm not going to wish about it. I hope the city will come to a place where ordinary citizens can go to them and and establish that. Yes, we will establish a garden and we will also be responsible for tending it. So we won't dig everything up and then leave it alone. So it all becomes a weed patch for Parks and Rec to to worry about. I hope that we will get to that place. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that we will, but we might. If and enough, I, if enough people push, we might. Yeah, I, I think, I think so. You know, enough, of and, enough. And we are blessed with, uh, with nonprofits like uh, Bountiful Cities, mm -hmm. that uh, that coordinate so many things. You know. Yeah, they're oh. awesome. Yeah, all all praise and glory to them for sure. They're good folks. Oh, well, now we've done down that rabbit hole. I did want to say something, and then I will take us back on track. But <laughs> okay. when I grew up, I, we had three and a half acres of land, and my mom had a garden. And every year, she would curse that groundhog for oh eating all of her <laughs> vegetables. But that groundhog was so cute. But yeah. Well, okay. I'm going to stay down this rabbit hole, oh, this groundhog okay. hole, for one more minute to say uh, they are delicious to eat. Oh. They can be captured and slaughtered, you know, humanely. I mean, we're talking about slaughtering an animal. How humane is that? But right. our ancestors certainly ate them. Oh. They are. Uh, they can be prepared in a way that is very delicious. There are certainly people in our community who uh, do eat them and will eat them. And by the middle of the summer, after they've eaten your grandma's garden, your mother's garden, and they've eaten all my romaine and, and all the raspberries, they are very, their flesh is very sweet, but pretty fatty. So that is, you know, that is one thing that if you look at ecosystems and biospheres, the reason we have a problem with groundhogs is that we have gotten rid of the predators to groundhogs. Right. We have gotten rid of the whole class of apex predators. I say that laughingly because we have foxes that live in our on our back bank. We have bears that come through here. So we do have, some, and we have coyotes. So we do have some of those apex predators, but as a class of predator, we really don't have enough of them to take care of the groundhogs. And our obligation, I think, one of our obligations as a species is that if we have chosen to destroy the apex predators in an ecosystem, it is our job to become those predators because that's the only way we have the balance. That's, a, that's why deer eat all of the beautiful lawns in Biltmore Forest 
is because there are no apex predators in Biltmore Forest. Animal predators, let's be clear about that. Right. There's no animal apex predators there to take care of it. Now, I will, I'll back us out of the groundhog hole. They are delicious, though, but very fatty. Well, that is Gre greasy, greasy groundhog. <laughs> yes, yeah. The, the key to it is to grill it, maybe over, over open coals, so that the fat drips down the way you would uh, cook a goose or a duck. Okay. That is also pretty fatty. I I, I didn't I learned something. I didn't know that people ate groundhogs and um, that they were tasty. So that's that's yeah. good information. I've never had one, but maybe one day. Never know. <laughs> well, I grew, I grew up in West Buncombe County, and I think I've eaten just about everything. There's things <laughs> I would there's things I would not eat again. Let's be clear. Okay. But but I've eaten a lot of things like squirrels and possums and stuff like that. Possum is very greasy. They look like they would be. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And we, we need them around to eat all the ticks anyway. All right. First question. Can you give us a brief description of what this book is about and what inspired you to write this book? And by this book, we will take everyone back to, we're talking about Roots, Branches, and Spirits. The I latest. got my copy out. Ooh. I lent mine to a friend, so I don't have it to show off, but it's in good hands. I'm spreading the word. I've got two thanks. copies, so if you never get it back. <laughs> but thanks for uh, lending it out. That's good. Oh, uh, why did I write it? Well, I, um, I'm going to talk in general for just a minute about why I write about this culture. I have two previous books on Appalachian folkways. The first one came out in 2012, and it's called Staubs and Ditchwater. And I started writing that because these practices seemed to be fading as the culture was fading. So y'all know that for, for a long, long time, the Southern Highlands, were separated from a lot of the dominant culture simply because of the way the mountains are set up and because of the general feeling of the people here who just want to be left alone. So until we started to get the TVA's rural electrification, a lot of things did not change on these little hill farms. Um, subsistence farming is really hard and there are young people now that are doing that. In fact, I'm not a young person, but I do, I do a fair amount of subsistence level farming myself. But the other techniques, the techniques for healing and what we would call magic techniques, though most of the practitioners would not use that word, they felt to me like I used to know a lot of people who did that, but then I didn't anymore. So the older generation felt like it was dying out. So the people who were my grandparents and great grandparents generation. And I was not in touch with a whole lot of people who were doing this. So I did this paper at Harvard called uh, Hill Folks Hoodoo and the Question of Cultural Strip Mining. And I was uh, obviously very proud to present at Harvard and Ironically, the bed and breakfast I stayed in while I was there had been owned by the cartoonist 
who did Little Abner. So there was this real kind of sense of the rural, urban, stereotype clash of, well, hey, look, this little girl raised in a cove in West Buncombe County. She's talking in Harvard. Ain't that amazing? And you hear the stereotype and all of that because part of that paper, which is in my first book, Stops in Ditchwater, in part of that paper, I, I just announced that I am, I am your worst nightmare. I'm an educated redneck. I have a terminal degree in my field. I have a master of fine arts, but I also am deeply rooted in my culture. And those two things often in the, um, in the, in the mind of the outside world, those two things often don't go together. So I wanted to write down as much of this stuff as I could. And that forced me to face a lot of things about what I knew about the culture and what I knew about how the greater culture considered this culture. Mm. And that was good, it was very good, but it was also writing all this stuff down like it was disappearing was also arrogant. So the second book came out of the fact that when I was touring around with the first book and going to places in West Virginia and Kentucky and Tennessee and Virginia, I would, I would go to, to speak and all these people who do this would show up like this. Like, huh, so you're going to tell me about folkways, are you? You're you going to quilt while you're doing it or how's that going to be? And I realized how arrogant I had been to think that this stuff was fading because people are still practicing it all over the region. They just don't have a Facebook page. They don't hang out a shingle saying, hey, guess what I do? I do Appalachian book magic. They just don't. So my second book comes out of that whole experience of, yeah, I'm not the only one in the country doing this, and I don't own this. And what it also introduced me to is a concept that I'm working on in my current book, which is the Appalachian diaspora. So we have outside the culture, a whole lot of people that have huge misunderstandings about the culture, despise the culture, um, are willing to do cultural strip mining, which we'll talk about in a minute. But there's also those people that their grandparents lived here, their great grandparents lived here, and they had to leave because there was no work. So they went into Cincinnati, they went into Ohio, they went to Texas, they went down to Georgia, they end up in California, they end up in Alaska, they end up in all these places. And, and when I taught, when I teach, especially this past year, I've spent a lot of time on Zoom and I'll have people go, hi, I'm from Adelaide, Australia, and my great, great grandmother lived in Haywood County, North Carolina, and I'll go, what? <laughs> I want to hear the story of how that happened. So there are a great number of people who think fondly about this culture, probably because it's not really their culture. So they have the fantasies of the stories of, oh, it's a beautiful summer night, and there's lightning bugs everywhere. 
and the and the old folks are sitting on the porch and they're telling the family stories and they're telling ghost stories and they have all of that one one woman in california was so sweet and she said i remember the hollyhocks and i said do you oh i love hollyhocks and she said yeah the hollyhocks they they planted them all around the outhouse so that if you were far from the outhouse you could see where it was well that is a lovely tender thought but it means that yes her grandmother or great-grandmother did not have indoor plumbing so had to go out to the outhouse so that the whole idea has been romanticized because these people are not living with having to get up in 11 degree weather to go outside the poop which by the way at that time of year there wouldn't be hollyhocks to be seen anyway so. uh, yeah, exactly no, no hollyhocks then uh -huh. So, so, so can you kind of def define more of that term cultural strip mining, like, um, or ways that you recommend people sort of check themselves to avoid that they're, that they're doing it, especially with the influx of tourism and everything that we're seeing to this, this region in, in many recent years? <laughs> well, I want to give a shout out to my, uh, my friend and colleague who is ill right now. Her name is Marilyn McMinn McCrady. And she is a very traditional Appalachian storyteller. And she introduced me to the idea of cultural strip mining in the 1980s when we were comparing cultural stories, you know. And she she swears now, because I mentioned I mentioned cultural strip mining in this book, and I checked in with her to thank her again for that phrase. It's so useful. And she said, No, I, I didn't start that. I got that from somebody. And isn't that the Appalachian story though? I attribute it to her. She attributed it to somebody. Now, she couldn't remember who it was, but she said, oh, and I don't even think she invented it. I think somebody else. So we don't know the origin of it, but I've certainly popularized it. And it's the notion that people, well, we know what strip mining is. When you go in and you take down levels of mountain, and so you can take coal primarily, but any kind of mineral that is buried in the heart of the hill. You take that away and you destroy the mountain in the process. That's what strip mining is. So cultural strip mining is when you despise everything about the culture, including the people in it. But there's that one thing that you love, buddy. Oh, I just love bluegrass music, don't you? It's too bad it's all done by those dirty, inbred, ignorant hillbillies. So that encapsulates what cultural strip mining is. We understand in Appalachia that we are the butt of jokes. In fact, we are one of the last cultures that you can mock with impunity. Nobody's going to stop you. There is not a there's not an Appalachian anti-discrimination league. We don't have that. I mean, God knows the Appalachian Regional Commission doesn't touch any of that. So we don't, as a, as a culture, we don't have anybody, including ourselves, who will just stand up and go, you know what? I'm just sick and tired of you saying that. So just shut up, sit down and shut up. If you don't have something good to say about my culture, shut your damn mouth. We don't do that. And maybe we should do that. And heaven knows, 
I've been known, known to do that. So, so you've stepped up to, to take some of it on yourself for sure. Uh, yeah. And, and it's, it actually is easier now that I'm older because I really don't care. You know, <laughs> the, my town, as far as I'm concerned, and certainly my neighborhood have been ruined, ruined with million dollar homes and people who don't care about the culture, don't care about the history and, um, and, and period, period. So if it offends the Chamber of Commerce, do I look like I care? <laughs> so I talk about it a lot and, um, and I strive to have people understand that there are words like, I'm very clear in my first book and in classes and in all of my writings that I don't use the word hillbilly. I never, never want people outside the region that are not native to the region to use it. Because when somebody from New Jersey or California or even Texas or Georgia uses the word hillbilly, I know what they mean. And it's not good. Now, hillbilly yeah. is one of those words, and you all can think of, I know, several of them, that can be used within the culture. So if I'm sitting here with my cousin, I can say, well, those are some hillbilly shoes you got going on, girl. What is up with that? And we both know what that means. But if somebody from New Jersey, I don't want to pick on New Jersey, if somebody from Massachusetts is down here visiting and and they don't necessarily, and because I'm speaking to them in 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 the accent, not my native one, and they don't understand that I am from here and of here, and they will say, well, I mean, it's a beautiful place, but you, I tell you, you get outside the city, city limits and they're just all these hillbillies, all these rednecks, mm -hmm. all these blah, blah, fill in the blank. Yeah. I know what she means. I know what she means. And before my family was in blessed Buncombe County, or as I like to refer to it, I came from West by God Buncombe County. Before that, my family was in Madison County and Haywood County and Henderson County. And my family's been here a long, long, long time. So I am not but so patient with all of that. And the reality is that we are one of the richest biospheres in the world. And it, it used to be that poor subsistence farmers could raise enough cash money with ramp hunting and ginseng and all that to pay their taxes, to buy the kids shoes. But now they have become, foraging has become a cottage industry. And there are people out there who are who are foraging pounds and pounds and pounds of these materials and and they are scarce now and plants like ginseng are on their way to extinction because of what a we whole, are whole different kind of whole different kind of strip mining yeah exactly exactly but it's the same thing it's still strip mining out of the area so I, I talk about it a lot. I fight about it a lot. Um, I don't know how much can be done about it. There are wonderful groups. I mean, if y'all don't know United Plant Savers, you need to know them. 
there are wonderful groups that uh, when, when these big pipelines were coming through and they were just clear cutting whole acre upon acre of land to bring in a pipeline, there were people on the ground who were going ahead of them and pulling out these native plants because they knew it, they would just get bulldozed. Yeah. And, and there were people like me who would say, you send me what you got. I'll find a place to put it. And then, and then we, you know, dump a little money in their PayPal account to help them do what they're doing. And there's still people doing that. You know, um, now it's, I mean, we do still have pipelines going through, but now it's development. Yeah. Now it's mm -hmm. let us clear. You can't, have y'all driven down Tunnel Road lately? Go yeah, the last South time I went down, it was kind of a shock because it had been the better part of the year of the pandemic that I hadn't but bothered driving into Asheville that way. And then I went and I was Me like, too. whoa, that's all new. Jeez. Yeah, I drove, down, I drove down Cox Avenue, down South Slope last week after I went to the post office because I was feeling all feisty. I got my second shot on Tuesday and I was like, huh, I'm ready to conquer the world. Let's see what the hell's going on on South Slope. And I went down there and it's a place I don't recognize. And then horrific development off Ashland. So I'm not a fan of development and I'm not a fan of developers because I think as a rule, we do it very, very badly. And it is a toxic mess. Yeah. I'm trying well, in terms of how that links into sort of the cultural strip mining, I feel like, you know, there's a lot of people that might move here with the best or most simple intentions, um, not realizing even if they buy into one of those new developments, how contentious it is to the locals when they do so. Um, or even if they're not necessarily, you know, they might be a little more aware in those situations, but say they say they just move into a really old bungalow and, and just fix that up. And, you know, they're generally not doing a lot to, or they think they're not doing a lot to impact what's going on around here, but they unwittingly are. What, how, how do you help those kinds of people avoid cultural strip mining in that they move here with the best of intentions, but they don't necessarily know how they might be impacting things to the negative? Well, that is such a big question. So I must start with this is that somebody who moves here because they love the mountains or they love whatever it is they love about Asheville, they move here and they do what you're saying. They they buy a little bungalow and they grow grow a garden. They grow in their own food and they get to know their neighbors. That's not who I'm talking about. I'm talking about Florida developers who come in here and they buy land and sometimes they cheat people out of their land. And I've seen that happen. And then they create McMansions or they create these greenwashed gated communities. Oh. But there's a bee yard. Oh, but there's an apple orchard. And that is the worst kind of greenwashing. Um, now, this person that bought the bungalow, I'm a boy, this is this is a dangerous rabbit hole, and you may want to cut all of this out. <laughs> oh, hold on. We have we have seen property values here escalate in a horrifying way. Yeah. Horrifying in the past five years. I mean, it was bad before that, but in the last five years, it has been horrific. And that person who bought the bungalow may have come from, let us say, Long Island, which is where my husband's from, Long Island, where if you own a bungalow there, it's probably worth 
$2 million. So you decide you're going to move out of the city. You're going to move to a smaller town. You want to move to an artsy town. So Asheville, as we all know, the Tourist Development Authority and the Chamber spend millions of dollars every year to advertise us out of market. So you open up your Sunday paper in on Long Island and you go, that's that looks beautiful. I think I'm just going to sell up here. So you sell your home for two million dollars. Then you come down here and to spend a quarter of a million dollars on a bungalow doesn't seem like a lot of money to you because it's like, whoa, well, the market here is really good. Well, let me tell you, that damn bungalow is worth $45,000. In a real market, it's worth $45,000. So what that person has done is they have elevated the property value, the, the property value, but what they've really done is elevated the property cost. So yeah. the people who are living here in a place that is, totally dependent on a tourist economy because we've lost any kind of industry and and there can be almost no investment here that is not tourist related hence all the hotels yeah so what happens here is that people are working here and they love it here but they can't afford to live here anymore my my daughter lives in charlotte and she is paying less for rent in charlotte than she would here and that's obscene. And I don't believe in sin, but if I did, wasting food would be one and that would be another. But the only yeah. way you can, you can do anything about that is if you do not elect people who love developers and real estate people to the city, county and the county commissioners. The only way you can even begin to control it. And we are too late with all of that. It makes me sad to think about how people who've, you know, lived here, you know, most of, if not all their lives, especially if their families go back in the area, are like getting priced out of even being able to stay in, in what they yeah. know of as home. And, and Jennifer can even speak to that. She's been having quite the adventure the, the past few months. Yeah, I'm, I, I have, I've got two, two things. To, to say, yes, um, um, we are looking for a house currently in this crazy market. So we are one of the, and um, our, our realtor said that half of the people that they are dealing with are coming from out of town. And it's, it's just really difficult because we just want to find a little house um, that we can afford and um, the people coming in from you know other places that have so much more money they're coming in they're driving up the market so we're all trying to find spaces on the outside and we've been really running into this issue where everything is either like too expensive or it's in the right price range but it's in disrepair and we don't have like the cash to fix it or put in what it needs. Yeah. Um, and it's crazy. Like we go to a house and we have like a tiny time to look at it. And then there's people before and after us coming to see it and things are gone in two days. Yeah. The real good stuff. Um, so it's been a real, it's been a real struggle. Um, and, but going back to 
um, going back to before when you're talking about, um, you know, back to Ellen's question and and about the people that moved in and just bought the 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 house and then um, you know got to know their neighbors and everything else. So that was my family, like in the '80s. We came from New York. Yeah. Um, we yeah. came from Brooklyn, and we bought a old farmhouse and three and a half acres of land and like my mom did a garden and we we purchased Johnson's Farm and Home Supply in Weaverville. Um, I yeah. don't know if you're familiar with that. We were the last owners. And oh. yes. I miss that place. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Me too. Um, and so we just sort of got like for me, like, you know, I I was nine, so I I just got impressions of what people thought about the region, you know, yeah. and um, and for me as a nine year old, I was like, man, why are we going to this boring place? Like I just thought it was boring. Like I didn't, you know, yeah. and um, but by the time we were here, you know, and I made, it was a little transition, but once I did, I felt like I got adopted. Like yes. by the man, by the people, and um, you know, and I think our neighbors thought we were weird, but <laughs> you know, but my mom was so enthusiastic about like learning how to garden and everything that they they helped her out all the time, and so I think we just you know be, they became part of the the culture and everything else, and um, so that is such that is such a beautiful story. And there's so many people that moved here during the back to the land movement in the 70s and 80s. And they did just what you're talking about your parents did. They what they really wanted to do was fit in and they wanted to do do their thing, man. And because of that, they were able to reach past. We have a real kind of cultural reticence here. And I mean, it does it, it does sometimes grow to the to the point of being xenophobia. But mm -hmm. generally speaking, we just we just, you know, we don't necessarily trust people very much. And there's lots of good reasons for that. One of them being cultural strip mining. But you, I don't know. You probably know Vicki Lane's work, don't you? She's a writer who lives up in Madison County. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't know she hadn't been here for eight generations. Because she has, she has gone seamlessly in, and learned learned from her neighbors, learned the stories of her neighbors, and she writes wonderful books. Uh, it seems a, like when there's the respect and the humility entering into it, then the culture is happy to sort of adopt you in because you're not stomping all over them, but. Yeah. If you come in, if you come in high and mighty, then you better be prepared to get knocked down a peg or two for sure. Yes, that that is a really good way to put it, actually. Yeah, yeah, and and the sense that we hear, I hear this a lot, and I know other people do too, is that, well, but where I came from, we did it like this, and it's like, well, maybe you should go back to where you came from if that's how you like it done. Because the way we do it here is like this, okay? Um, but there is a there's a level of again reticence uh, on the part of some native people 
uh, and that's a lowercase n native people uh, to um, to to really make waves. They're they're more likely to just shut down and shut you down. So then they don't talk to you, and then you can call them by their first name, but they're always going to call you Ms. Braverman. Um, so yeah, yeah. All of that is absolutely accurate. So this one reason I do so much teaching and and my accent goes in and out because my my master's degree is in theater and I ran a theater here for many years. But I've discovered in relearning my natural accent that there are people outside the region who can't understand me. They they genuinely can't. And I don't have a particularly heavy country accent. But they go, what you, what did you just say? Would you say that again? And then I immediately code switch so that I'm speaking to them in proper English so that they can understand. And I let me do this too, proper English so that they can understand what I am saying to them as opposed to what happens for any of you all who follow our Weird Mountain Gals podcast where we just, we hit the ground running and we talk about <laughs> We just and we all talk we talk like this and and we because we both are from around here, our accents sometimes just get stronger and stronger and stronger because it's like, oh finally. It's like after a big meal you can kinda unbuckle your pants. <laughs> it's like, oh good. So I'm just be who I am. This is really good. Um <clears throat> my my professional uh group is called the Appalachian Studies Association. And I go to their conference pretty much every year. I remember the first year I went to the conference. Where was it? It might have been Boone, somewhere like that. And it was so delightful to walk through a whole, and it's a big conference, a conference full of people. And you would hear snatches of conversation as you were going from one place to another. And everybody sounded pretty much like me. And that's the first time that had ever happened. And there'd be there'd be somebody over here playing the fiddle and you'd walk a little bit farther in the hotel. And then there would be somebody over here who was clog dancing as a demonstration. And so it really was this extraordinary moment where I realized I was not going to have to code switch the whole weekend. I could just be exactly who I was and I could use phrases like lousy or Lord Almighty, Lord Almighty, damn, what was that? And nobody would have to stop, and I'd have to, I'd have to <clears throat> code switch back into my my uh, code switching accent as a normal and regular American person, and explain, ah, the word lawsy is a corruption of the word of this phrase that comes out of the diaspora of. I never had to do any of that because I heard people say things I'd not heard since I was a kid. I'd go, oh my God, people really used to say that. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> it's funny so because, it, like, oh, sorry. Um, no, go even, ahead. even me, like, um, because I, you know, I feel like the north, the northern accent collided with the southern accent, so I almost <laughs> don't have one. But I can, when I'm with people speaking a stronger southern accent, I can hear that come out stronger versus, That's like, so when I'm with people with more of a northern accent like my parents still have their northern accent but people are like 
where'd you guys move from? Or like, we've been here for 30 years, <laughs> you know, because they still and have you, it. Your people are from Brooklyn? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And do they have the Brooklyn accent or did they? I'm sure they don't at this point, but no, they still do. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's I mean, great. I mean, oddly enough, my parents moved to Texas two years ago to be closer to my brother. So I, I'm the only one here and, and it really broke my heart that I wasn't able to purchase our, our house with our land. Um, I think that was and, really, and I bet it broke hard. their heart that they couldn't just say, come here. Come live here. We're going to Texas. I think so. I think so. You know, they had to sell it to have the money to do the move and yeah. yeah. Um, and um, but I but hope, yeah, they I, hope still, they, I hope they got a good price for it. They did. Although right now, mom was like, "Look at the house. They're trying to sell it for like half a million dollars and blah blah blah." And I'm like, "No, I'm not looking at the house. I'm not looking at the listing. It's gonna make me sad." And oh, it's already on the market again. Oh my yeah, it's already on the market again. But yeah, they still have their accent. So it's very yes, strong. That's great. I'm I'm so in favor of people keeping their native accents because we lose we lose something in the culture when we lose that. That's another piece of of people like me choosing to lose their accent because frankly, outside the region and even some places within the region, you can't have the kind of accent I had growing up in West Buncombe and expect to get hired for a job or to be treated with any kind of respect or for anyone to think that you are intelligent and, uh, and capable of cleverness. So there is this, in <clears throat> when I discovered the phrase code switching, it was perfect because so many people choose to leave the region because for any number of reasons, jobs, they get priced out of land and, and houses, whatever. And then they get outside the region. And if they try to talk the way they talk, then they, they understand what that huge stigma is around language. But the, the accent here, like, like the accent in Haywood County is slightly different than the accent in Haywood in Henderson uh, County or in Madison County. And Yancey County is different still. So it, it, it's a subtle, subtle thing, but just to keep even a slightly generic Southern Appalachian accent can be really, really hard if you are not in this region because it is, people judge you. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. we stand always as a region we stand between these two weird stereotypes, whether where we are either sort of long lost throwbacks to an Elizabethan age where where people talk just like they did in Elizabethan times and they, you know, make spring tonics and whatever else. And then the other one is deliverance. Mm -hmm. And so those are the two cultural stereotypes that we have to swing a hammock in between and go, well, Sometimes it is like this a little bit, and sometimes it is like this a little bit, and that's um that's a that's a challenging place to be, especially if you're a young person trying to figure out who the hell you are. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. do you want to go out in the world and have people immediately judge you on your accent and where you're from, when you know they're already going to judge you for all the other things people judge you for? So there is no, on my part, 
there is no judgment on people who choose to leave the region and to code switch, none at all. It breaks my heart because they have to do that. Mm -hmm. So that's part yeah. of what I'm, what my work is that, you know, I want, I want that 18 year old who was top of her class at Mars at, at the Marshall high and she did not choose to go to Mars, Mars Hill mm -hmm. University, but instead she chose to go to the Rhode Island School of Design because that's her talent. And I want her to be able to go there as fully Appalachian as she can be when she's at home and still be respected for her talent and ability. And we're just and not there yet. Take and pride. I will be. Take pride in, in, in where she comes from without having to feel defensive over it. Yeah. 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 So in your first chapter where you touch on the cultural strip mining, you made a, a comment and I don't have the book in front of me to pull the context out, but I remember the, the comment really moved me with your choice of imagery, but I didn't fully grasp uh, why you chose to say what you did. So maybe you can explain it here. You, you said, still the people are lost and hopeless with rubies at their feet. What, what is that referring oh, to? Thank you. Isn't that a funny little phrase? Well, it's, it's all about what these mountains are and what they contain. So here in Western North Carolina, we are not coal country. We are jewel country. So here people mine for rubies, they mine for emeralds, they mine for aquamarine. So here literally underneath our feet, there are rubies, there are jewels that are mined. And yet, do the people of the region really have access to any of that? Not, not really. Hmm. Because what happens is people, they, they open these gem and mineral mines and, you know, stuck out in the middle of some county. And then tourists come and, and they have, uh, they've salted, maybe salted their sample with some pretty jewels that they can take away with them. But do, do we want everybody to know the minerals that are available here so that they can come in and strip mine those? So that we have, I mean, there was a gold rush here. You all know that, right? Mm -hmm. Before yeah, the gold a, little rushing, more, a little bit more east, it wasn't was, it? It was east of here. Yes, it was. But so that's the thing is that we are, we are unaware. And so symbolically, it means we are unaware of the treasures of the culture. Many people who are part of and live within the culture are unaware that there are treasures. And and if you think about some of the things that are going on with uh, crystal mining in places like Arkansas, mm -hmm. we certainly don't have that here yet. Mm. Yet. Mm. So there could be more that they could take from the region. Oh gosh, yes. <laughs> well, you know, you know, the whole southern forests were clear cut twice you know that yeah twice and that's why when you go to places like Joyce Kilmer and there are a couple other kind of secret places that are maybe virgin but certainly are old growth you have to lament the fact that there are not those trees left yeah because they, 
they got cut down and sent down a river somewhere to a sawmill, sawmill somewhere else. Yeah. So that was that was our um, that was our dowry here for all those trees. I, I remember when I found out, and I was uh, that the trees had been like clear cut, and I was like, "Wow, I had I had no idea. I just had no idea." Um, so. Um, yeah, I you see those really, pictures. Yeah. Really amazing. You see pictures of the mining of the uh, lumber camps, and you just think, yeah, there were some big trees here. Would have rivaled the redwoods back in the day. Yeah. Well, the um, chestnuts, and I always think it's kind of a fairy tale thing with the chestnuts to me. It's like we just kept cutting these trees down, cutting and cutting and cutting. And even though I understand scientifically that what killed the chestnuts was a blight that came out of, I think it was probably China. I don't remember exactly where. That's what literally killed the chestnuts. But in a folkloric sense, if you keep removing something, at what point does it just go, oh, so you don't want me here? Okay, I'll go. Yeah. And then... No more chestnuts. I, I think that's a good, well, a good segue into the into the next into the next question. And um, um, so this is a quote from the book: um, "Modern humankind, with its intentional quest to be separate from and superior to nature, is the real disease vector, and our sad and impossible quest." To separate from land, history, and people, we lose so much that cannot easily be regained. Um, so the question is, um, what steps do you think we as humans could could take to shift away from this idea of being superior to nature? Um, and how can we start to reclaim what was lost? And I just want to say that I wish that we still had chestnut trees because they I saw pictures of them. They looked awesome. So. <laughs> Yeah, and they're still young chestnuts because evidently the disease doesn't hit them until they're a little bit, you know, think 13, 14 years old. So you can still see young ones. Um, but yes, and there's, again, the United Plant Saver People and the Chestnut Foundation, they're doing amazing work. So shout out to all of them. <clears throat> well, the first thing is to just go outside and to be outside more. And to, and to go to other places outside. So the first thing is spend time in your yard, if you have a yard. But spend time in the yard in all kinds of weather so that you're not just out there, oh, it's a beautiful day, it's 65 degrees and it's sunny, I'm going to go out. Go out when it's rainy and go out when it's cold and go out when it's 98 degrees. Ah, and it will be before we know it. Go out in the in all of the seasons and just be on the land. That's the first thing. I, honestly, if people would do that, and if people would do that, it might be enough. But if you do that, and then there's some plant, if you're out on the land in your yard or in a park near your apartment, Find that one plant that you see all the time. And it might be a dandelion. It might be an old weasened up apple tree. 
It might be uh, sour grass. What? Find that one plant and get to know that plant, that one plant. Because what happens, we are so gluttonous about knowledge and information because we have lost so much. So mm -hmm. it's like we just want to eat it all in. Oh, please tell me about the biosphere. Tell me all the plants. Well, you could spend your whole life here and not understand every plant that grows here because it is such a diverse biosphere. And we are... We have been acculturated and trained that the only knowledge that is good and valuable is this all purpose. I got to know everything about everything so that if you are studying herbalism, it takes you years and years and years and you learn Chinese herbs and you learn herbs that grow in California and all of that. I am a folkloric herbalist. So I am going to tell you, if you if you come to me and say, as you just did, how do I reconnect? I'm going to tell you to find one plant, one plant that every time you look out, you see it. It might be clover. I don't know what it's going to be. And you learn everything you can learn about that plant. You learn where it originated. You learn, is it native? Is it invasive? Is it edible? Is it medicinal? You learn everything about that plant and you talk to the plant and you respect the plant for all that it can do. Dandelion is a wonderful place to start because every part of the plant is usable. It is, it is highly adapted to all kinds of areas, highly adapted to an urban setting. So you are likely to see that. That is the plant that grows through the damn concrete, that plant. So that, the way, the habit, as they call it, of that plant should tell you a lot about how you too can live your life, about being strong and resilient and not letting pressure, pressure from above, concrete, stop you from whatever your goal is. So you start with that one plant. And then after that, maybe the plant you, maybe you planted a rosemary that your mama gave you. And you were lucky enough to plant it in the right place because rosemary's really kind of funny. You know, it's a, it's a, it, it likes a lot of hot weather. It likes some poor soil. It likes pure sun. And it doesn't like you to mess with it except to snip bits off of it. So say you plant that rosemary, which is not a native species. You plant that in your garden and it thrives. And then you have a non-native to look at. And you find out, again, everything you can about it. It is edible. It is medicinal. This is its growth pattern. These are its growing habits. This is where it originated. You learn all of that. And that plant is going to instruct you about how you live in the natural world. Um, and you branch out from there. Because what happens is you buy a book. So here are the healing herbs of the Appalachian biosphere. And you try to memorize everything in that book. And there probably is a book like that. And I'm not mocking it. Sure I have it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you try to read everything in that book and absorb it, absorb the information when the best way to learn. And I don't even like to say this because I write books and I certainly want people to buy my books. <laughs> but again, if you want to practice folk magic, the best way to do it is to practice it through trial and error. 
So get to know the plants, get to know the soil, because around here we have that really beautiful, iron-rich, red clay soil. I mean, we don't have it like they do in Georgia, because Lord of mercy, they got it in Georgia. But we also have sandy loam. We have the kind of thin, thin but rich soil of the forest floor. And, and then you get to know soil and you get to know what soil needs and how you interact with soil. Because, because the whole point of not only organic gardening, but of permaculture is that you tend the soil and the plants will take care of themselves because they will be healthy and resilient because the soil is good. And then you so start essentially, essentially relearning what we've lost is like, you're almost saying like, get out there and enjoy what we haven't lost because if we're invested in that, then we'll maybe stop losing things. <laughs> You said that so much more succinctly than I did. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but it, but that's great. You know, that's kind of what this whole, our whole theme is about on this show is like, yeah, get the wheels turning for people to, to figure out how they can get out, just get out there and get connected just somehow. So I appreciate I told that. This, I told this story recently to uh, an, another person about, I was at some kind of gathering and it was over in a park in West Asheville. And well, I don't know. It was, it was one of the, now we're going to save the environment sort of things because we're superior to it. So we can save it. You know, those groups you've been in those, you've been in those things. Yeah. So we're standing in a circle in a public park in West Asheville and I'm standing with a, another uh, herbalist and she muttered plantain. And then she muttered dandelion and I muttered chickweed. And so within the scope of where we were standing while they were blathering on and on and on about transition Asheville or whatever it was, there were more than a dozen medicinal and edible plants literally at our feet that nobody mentioned, nobody mentioned them. So that, it shows us that sometimes with the very best of intentions, we we don't get it. We're still we, disconnected somehow. We are still disconnected. And it's not, uh, I don't, uh, bleh, uh. <laughs> I get, I, obviously I get frustrated trying to, trying to not be judgmental about people who are approaching this for the first time but also being really speaking truth to power about these people who, you know, they're my age, they're older and they're your guru. I'm going to be your plant guru now. And you are going to get all this information through me. Well, you know what? I don't need an intercessor for my spirituality. I sure as hell don't need an intercessor between me and plant life. And nobody does. Nobody does. So we have to understand that many of us have lost the knack of talking to a dandelion, <laughs> but it's not hard. It's not hard to reach down and feel that leaf and to see the little spiky edges on the leaf, to break a leaf off and see the milk that flows through an older dandelion stem. That's, that's not rocket science. That's just paying attention. 
<laughs> I, I so appreciate you putting that out there so forthright because I know both Jennifer and I have kind of gone around the loop before of just like stressing about like, but how are we going to learn? Who are we going to learn from? Everyone must find a master. And it's like, yeah, but how did those people learn? And how did the people before them learn? Everybody just learned because it was there and they had to use it. So they found out how to use it, you know? Yeah. And, and kind of take it down a notch, you know, and into the getting grounded, like literally, you know? <laughs> literally, exactly. Literally grounded. I have sometimes told people when they, because I, you know, I teach a lot of magical practice too. And people will go, you don't understand. I'm a Gemini. I can't get grounded. And I'll go, okay. It, it means you have to work harder. If you were a Taurus, it would be easy. You would be like, mm, now I'm grounded. So it's a little bit harder if you're a Gemini. If you're one of the air signs, it's harder. So you have to work a little bit harder. But put some dirt in your shoes. <laughs> Walk barefooted, lay down flat in the in the grass. Yeah. If you have don't use anything up, as an excuse. <laughs> exactly. Just I mean, try different things until they work. It so much of life is experiential, and many of us now are so afraid that we're going to get hurt either physically because we've had over a year of a pandemic where you can't. Where the three of us could not just meet at my kitchen table. And I can make you a cup of tea and some buttered toast. But there are yeah. there are so many people in social media platforms who are willing to judge you on every step you take. And so a lot of people are reticent and a lot of people are afraid. And a lot of people are just so confused about all of it that it is easier to buy another book on it and just start reading and hope that this book is the magic bullet. I mean, I've done that learning. I've been learning Irish Gaelic for years and I buy every new course about, Oh, well, this is going to teach you Irish. It's going to be great. The reality is if I worked on Irish Gaelic 15 minutes a day with any book, I'd be okay at it. I would. So it's a matter of putting the work in. If you really care about it, do the work, make, the time investment to do that. But if you're just a dilettante, if this is the latest thing because you happen to be dating a guy who is all about herbalism, then you're probably not going to put in the time and it doesn't really matter because you're not going to be dating him in a year anyway. <laughs> that was such an Asheville scenario right there. Oh, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Both Ellen and I, we really loved how you indicated the head, heart, and gut are the uh, powerful and magical tools of humans. And I'm just going to read a quote. These are the basic tools of human beings, whether they practice magic or not. The head is vision, imagination, deep thought, and intuition. The heart is the investment of emotion into the act of creation. Doing the job with love and compassion. The belly is the will, the strength, the guts to bring that intention to fruition. 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 These powerful tools work for art and parenting. Parenting. For 
for parenting, for partnering, and for magic, for everything, really. Um, can you explain more for our listeners how and, and why this is? We tend to look at everything in life, I think probably everything. I don't know. I'll, I'll quantify that a little bit. But we tend to look at, at a lot of aspects of life as something that's going to require lots of information and and because many people have been brought up in a way where they haven't had to meet a lot of challenges on their own they um they don't know where to start with stuff and Mm. it is it is true for me at least and i think for other people that if you start by paying attention and that if you realize that anything worth doing is worth putting time and effort into, then you start to understand that those basic building blocks that you just read in that quote, those basic building blocks work for almost everything in life. That you you have that creative spark about something and maybe it has to have a gestational period and and you find that you're very passionate about it and that you find that by doing this one thing perhaps you can show compassion to your community or your neighborhood or your family and and all of those things begin to work together uh, through the medium of your hands um, to create something that is greater than the sum of all those parts. And I talk a lot about community, and I talk about it in terms of weaving a basket. So there's a lot of different parts, and some of it has to be wet. Some of it has to be d- dried previously. I mean, there's so many ways that you take things and you you go around one thing and then you tuck in and then you go under another thing and you are persistent in the patterning of what you're doing. And that patterning then can expand into whatever you are doing. But what it means is that you are creating something that is secure and something that is a container. And then it contain it can contain all sorts of things. It can contain how you parent. It can contain how you age. It can contain how you do magic. All of that. Wow. And it does sound like the 4-H. It sounds like the 4-H club, doesn't it? Hard yeah. Hard hard. It's, like, it's, like, it's like weird Appalachian 4-H club. Hey, well, you know, <laughs> sign me up. Well, the, you know what, what I think is so nice about the way you put it is that you're calling it out in, in all humans. It's like, look, you know, own the power that that we have inherent to our abilities and, and that everybody has the potential to tap into that and use those forces, you know, for, you know, whether you want to call it and look at it as magic or not is almost beside the point. It is sort of the power that humans possess and, and we have the ability to, to make the best of it if we in, invest our energy in that way. Yeah. Well, we, and we talk in terms of something that is natural versus something that is supernatural. I think it's all natural. I think the ability to uh, stick a wet finger into the air and tell how fast the wind is moving and what direction it's going from, that's something you learn from your ancestral traditions. 
And it may look like somebody just walks out on the back porch and goes, I believe there'll be rain by the afternoon. But it's not like a psychic ability. It's like I'm looking at the cloud patterns in the sky and I'm smelling the wind and I'm doing all those things that are absolutely natural things. But it requires us to pay attention and it requires us to believe that it is healthier and more healing for us to spend our energy learning those things than it is to shield ourselves with all the things that we shield ourselves to make ourselves feel better, whether it's food or it's intoxicants or it's TV or it's whatever that thing is that you lose yourself in so you don't have to feel stressed out and anxious and so the modern world doesn't kill you. Well, you can choose to confront the modern world in a way that harkens back to the knowledge that we as a species always had and still do. We still do on some level. So uh, the next question um, really picks up in the same vein is, is talking about um, what you talk about the importance of everyday magic. So what is the importance of the magic of everyday and this idea of using what is around you in your magic and how can we start to see the magic in our everyday lives? <laughs> I, am, I am laughing because right now on Facebook, we are having this enormous conversation about that. Really? So, yes. So we have, um, and, and I have already been in contact with uh, one of my editors about the possibility of writing yet another book about this. So, if we harp, if we go back to what we were just talking about, all those four H's, all the H's, and we understand that bringing that to bear on this thing that we call magic takes it out of the realm of the woo-woo and the supernatural, and it is the practitioner um, setting a firm intention about something and then bringing the tools and allies to bear to make that happen. That seems so easy, doesn't it? And yet, and yet we have layer upon layer of, and this time I'm gonna use the word cultural to mean magic, magical cultural. So there are all these different kinds of magics. What I practice is a folk magic that is absolutely bound to the cycle of the seasons. It's bound into how the moon is and how the earth is. It's bound into all of that so that instead of adding specific colors of candles and expensive tools and herbs that don't come from around here, then if, you, if you're not adding those layers and layers of stuff between you and the natural energy of the planet, then it makes the practice of magic easier. <clears throat> so you don't need to remember a rhyming couplet or three <laughs> garbled Latin phrases. You right. don't have to have spent $200 on a hand-tooled wand. What you can do is <clears throat> ground yourself. What you can do is consider your intention with your head, 
ground yourself, pull energy up, and send it to your intention. That's magic. That's what magic is. It's not like, oh my God, I've got to buy another spell book. No, you actually don't. And I'm sorry for all my people, my friends who write spell books, but you don't actually have to buy another spell book. Any of these spells is going to work. An example I will give you is this. So a good friend of mine posts six rhyming couplets about how you how you summon a particular spirit being. Well, my first question was, why do you want to interact with this being? And she said, well, I don't know. Oh. Well, then, then why would you do that? that then why be... would you do that? Right. Um, so it's like the then, spiritual equivalent of the, the doorbell ditch in a way. <laughs> exactly. So she she didn't really know. So it becomes a parlor trip. Like, ooh, I want to be powerful enough to summon this spirit being. And? And? So right. if it's all about... It's, if it's all about you having power over another being, I'm going to question you on that. What's that mean? I'm going to summon. So are you in a place now where you have servants and you summon them? You ring a little bell and your servants come. And now you've got servants. You don't even have a, have a job for them to do. You just want to summon. You want to ring the little bell to see if they'll come. And that's offensive. That's offensive to the to the people who are spirits, but it's also it just shows a lack of good taste, if nothing else. And then we got to the six rhyming couplets, and I said, "Do you honestly think a being that is eons old is going to actually respond to this? I mean, you could at least have parsed out some Shakespeare <laughs> so that it sounded like something beautiful and might get somebody's attention." But this kind of rhymey, 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 who wants that? Any kind of spirit you could summon that would like that kind of crap is probably not somebody you want to hang out with. I'm just saying. <laughs> and, and then she, because she is a person who was defensive, and I was very offensive about all of it, as you might imagine. She said, well, she said, well what would you do? And I said, well, I would, I would figure out why I wanted that particular being to hang out with. I would figure out, do they have knowledge that I am interested in hearing about? Do they, they have an ability I would like to learn? So I'm gonna go through all of my whole levels about why I would like to do that. There's a, there is a wonderful meme that makes the rounds periodically of a little girl who summons a great big hairy demon to have a tea party with her because she didn't have any friends and she just wanted to have a tea party. Valid, absolutely valid. She set her intention, she did her work, and then when, and then when the demon got there, yes, how can I help you? She said, I, would you have a tea party with me? I made sandwiches. So absolutely, absolutely valid. But to just do something like that to prove that you can, I, I, I don't think I, not that my approval matters, but I don't think I would approve of that. So I told her I would research the spirit being in question as much as I can. And heaven knows there's tons of research you can do now online that you couldn't do 30 years ago or even 20 years ago. 
So you can find out everything there is to know about them. And then I would find out what they like to eat. Because, I mean, I'm a country woman. I'm an Appalachian woman. If I know what you like to eat, I can bring you to my house. <laughs> I can just say, I need some really excellent cornbread. And I've got some fresh uh, buttermilk. And I've got some uh, some butter that I churn. Are y'all hungry? Come on over about four o'clock. I'll set the table. It'll be good. So, and then find, and, or find out the things they love. Some spirit beings love music. So you can sing, 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 sing. And you will start to develop, again, a relationship. Hmm. So you're not their boss. You want to be in relationship with a species not like yours. Well, that's a good segue to something that um, I guess you're kind of known for. I, 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 I take it that you're kind of known for it because I see you post about it a lot and following you on Facebook and everything. And then you had a good section about it in this latest book, um, the candy spells. Could we go? Well, I guess to lead into that, you might have to do a little more definition of what you consider a spell is and for any um unknowing listener um but then also like why why candy like what else could somebody use why did you settle on that one um etc this, this is such a funny thing so um i don't refer to them usually as spells i refer to them as uh working or a job of work so anytime i'm doing magical work i think of it as work but Candy spells are like this gateway magic that anybody can do. And it's simple and it's effective. Now you layer into the simple effective of the candy magic, all the things that we know about grounding and using energy and setting intention, use all of that. It doesn't change because the tools have changed, but Years ago, I went to a conference for the Association for the Study of Women in Mythology. And there was a, a woman of uh, Indian extraction. I think she was first generation in this country. And she was talking about um, Kolem, K-O-L-E-M or K-O-L-A-M. And it's a there's a province in northern India, I believe, that believes that the more people you feed in the day, the more blessings accrue to your household. Isn't that lovely? Mm -hmm. And it feels very kind of Appalachian and Southern too. <laughs> Come on over, I made, I'll make extra cornbread, it'll be fine. So the, the woman of the house goes out every morning with rice flour and she does either a beautiful mandala right in front of the house or if she's like an exhausted, mother like most of us are she just gives out and she throws them out so you can this woman said so they're the martha stewarts who spend hours <laughs> drawing these beautiful designs and other people just go and go eat 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 bring me blessings i gotta go i gotta love <laughs> so the idea that over the course of the day insects eat it and animals come through and some of them eat it and at the end of the day the breeze just kind of blows the rest away to feed beings that you may not actually literally encounter. And all of that accrues 
blessings to your household. So I got to thinking about that. And I developed the first of the candy magics, which is the marshmallow spell, the marshmallow hex. <laughs> and in it, you take a marshmallow and you and your intention is that your boss at work always takes credit for everything you do. And because of that, you can't advance at work and nobody on a higher level than you will listen to you. And you're getting more and more frustrated and you don't want to have ideas, but you know that your ideas are furthering what your work is. So this hex is to knock your boss down just a peg so that your boss begins to understand that the, the praise needs to be shared and it needs to accrue to the person who had the idea there. So you write your boss's name all over a, um, a marshmallow in pencil. That's the best thing. You'll ruin a Sharpie doing this. So use a nice soft pencil. And then you're going to prick it with like toothpicks mm -hmm. or something. Because, you know, marshmallows have that kind of really firm outside shell that's really just dried out from being in contact with the air. So you want to prick that. And then you want to put the marshmallow like up in the bough of a tree. You don't want to leave it on the ground because dogs will get it and children will get it. So you want to be very conscious about what you're doing, like up into the, the bough of a tree, a crotch of a tree. And insects and the weather will slowly take it away. And you will notice that you are getting more credit for the work you were doing at work. Now you can use this in many, many uh, circumstances. That was, that's just an example. I knew a woman who was getting out of the relation, a toxic relationship with a, a husband who was almost an ex, but he wouldn't quite commit to some stuff. And she had these everywhere. You could walk into her yard, there were marshmallows <laughs> in all the trees. It's like she was growing marshmallow trees, but it worked for her. And reports come back to me all the time. I did that marshmallow thing and it worked really, really well. I was on my way to a festival in Tennessee with a friend of mine. And, and I was thinking about, wouldn't it be funny if you, if you did a thing where you contacted the dead with Necco wafers and you called them Necro wafers. <laughs> and we thought that was hilarious, That's but then funny. it got us started on this whole thing of, well, but then you could use, this is it. So then it, it became a class that I, that I teach, which is, I mean, it is, it's a little tongue in cheek because there are things like get these uh, candy barrels. You know, usually they're root beer barrels, but they also come in pickle flavors. So I know all about all the most disgusting candies you can imagine. <laughs> so you get the pickle flavored ones and you do that in solidarity with your best girlfriend who is going through the first trimester of pregnancy. And, and that's just you energetically showing your solidarity. Well, it's a tangible talisman to remind you that the thing you want to do is to check in with her and say, how are you feeling? Are you still throwing up? You know, what, did, what was the latest ultrasound? You know, all that stuff. So it is a, those candies then become a talisman. And, and it's just a lot of fun. But someone said, you know, the, this is like a, it's like gateway drugs. 
So you tell people they can do this with a Reese cup. Well, then what are they going to be capable of? And I said, well, if they can do it with a Reese cup, they can do it without a Reese cup. So right. at least they got to eat the Reese cup. <laughs> Just a sweet I mean, added bonus to the whole. And it's to show people that that tools are important, but mostly they're just talismans. Mm. That it, it's all about what your intention is. Uh, one of my favorite ones that I developed as part of that class, because there's that phrase people use all the time, uh, not my not my circus, not my monkeys. <laughs> and so I use circus peanuts for the time when it is your circus and those are your monkeys. And you're going to have to figure out how you're going to deal with it. And that's what circus peanuts are for. So candy just opens a whole realm of, of pun, not just pun possibilities, but even just gets the imagination going. It's fun. Yeah. It's yeah. 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 You got the sweetness and, of life thrown in there and everything. And, and it's, it's not, not necessarily it's anything not, yeah. better than the Indian women with their rice flour. It's just a different sort of modern, easily accessible take on, on that sort yes, of approach. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. You share some stories in there about your great grandmother giving you whorehound candies and that being such a sweet memory for you and something that involves, uh, you know, a little herbal magic yeah. in a way. Um, yeah. Have you ever tried making anything like that yourself or do you, have, have you, you ever made your own candies for your candy spells? I have. I've not. The, the candies I make, though, are generally just a whole lot of sugar and butter. And, and crazy food coloring, because that's what the color is also an attractant. But I've never made whorehound, but I have a really good friend in West Virginia who has. And she she makes it for me sometimes and sends it to me. It's really, nice. the homemade stuff is really delicious. And I may try making it myself this year. Sounds it's like you might need to make some uh, catnip candy with all the catnip you were telling yeah. us you had. <laughs> I wonder, oh, I wonder how that would taste, though. Catnip doesn't taste very good. Have you had catnip tea? Yeah. yeah. It needs oh, a lot of honey. Yeah. It needs a lot of honey. So one, one catnip leaf and the rest honey. <laughs> <laughs> Essence of catnip. There you go. I love it. So in more of your magic talk in the book, um, you... Talk about how you uh, don't have a lot of direct personal experience yourself with prophetic dreaming, but that it's, um, but that you had loved ones or friends that had more experience with it. And so you wanted to touch upon it as something that fits into the folk magic elements in the book. Um, mm -hmm. And I feel like it's something that, that I myself experience a lot in my life. So uh, having not had, many sounding boards for that when you talked about it in the book i got really excited but then it kind of left me wanting more so i wanted to bend your ear if i i mean you admitted in the book that you had limited experience with it but i just thought if there was anything else you could share about what you would consider yeah. prophetic dreaming or define that as years ago um i i did more of that than i do now now my dreams seem to be more uh, dreams that are omens rather than things that's going to happen, that things that are going to happen. Um, my grandmother had a particular dream, and Jennifer, I don't know if this is what happens with you or not, but she had a particular warning dream that when she dreamed it and she would wake up from the dream, she would know 
what the warning was and who she had to contact about it. But the dream was always the same. And the feeling with her was that if she told what the dream was, she would lose the ability. So mm -hmm. she never told any of us what, what she specifically dreamed, but it always shook her up. And then if it was something, you know, related to us as kids, she would call my mother and say, oh, I had the dream. This is what you need to do. And she did that with a lot of people. She was aware that her ex-husband had died. The, the family story is that she was on a she was on a short on a chair. She was on a chair changing a light bulb. And somebody came in the house and said, get down from the chair. I've got to tell you something. And she didn't even move. She kept doing what she was doing and then said and just turned over, looked over her shoulder and said, I already know my ex is dead. And she had dreamed it. She had had the dream. So mm -hmm. I never had the dream in that way. But I've dreamed things that happened two or three days later. But it's not something I regularly do. And now the dreams that I tend to have are dreams that seem very totemic. So that there are obvious sigils and images that then when I wake up, I go, ah, this is what all of that meant. So it's a little bit of a different thing. What, Jennifer, what kind of things do you have? That kind of, it, to me, all those things you just listed kind of sound like um, they would still kind of fall under the umbrella of what you could call prophetic dreaming. I guess you're referring to prophetic dreaming as being very much like, I dreamed this thing exactly this way and it exactly happened that way. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, we, I think we technically call that uh, precognitive dreaming. Okay. But so yeah, I would say you, the kinds of dreams no I have will usually be more, more probably along the symbolic route. But I have had instances where it's like, huh, that's so specifically symbolic and different from a lot of other dreams. So I'm just going to kind of like you said with your relative phoning up the other relatives and going, I've done that to friends and family before, like, just so you know, I had this dream, so maybe you should, you know, watch. the most recent example was uh, I just completely at random dreamt about my sister losing her cat and being just beside herself about it. And, and I was asking her in the dream about, well, did you put up like lost cat posters to try to find the cat? I woke up the next day and told her that because it was just such a specific thing for me to have dreamt. And she said, oh my gosh, we just took our cat out yesterday for, for like they've been trying to train her on the leash. And they were like, this is the first time we took her out and she actually seemed to enjoy it and was getting almost a little curious for her own good. And we don't have the right size leash for her. She could have slipped out of it. I'm gonna make sure I go get her the right size leash now. And I was like, man, I'm so glad I said something, <laughs> you know? Like just little things wow. like that. So I, when you mentioned it in your book, I was like, I wondered if, if you knew, is there something that you would advise people on like how to hone that skill or something like a meditation? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, start by just doing everything thing you can to remember your dreams. And that's just a matter of training yourself to remember. So that first thing in the morning, and this happens, I think, up to a lot of people, first thing in the morning and you wake up and you have like trailing clouds of the dream you remember the feeling of the dream or you remember 
your car was in the dream. Well, the more you think about that every morning, so even if you have to pee first thing before you do that, think about what was I just dreaming before I woke up? And you will train yourself to remember the dreams better. And there are there are aids you can use. Mugwort is a wonderful plant for mm. helping you remember your dreams. Um, well, I've got a lot mugwort. of that on my property, so I should make more use of it. Uh, it's so funny right now. Mugwort is a is a hot commodity. I think among the TikTok witches, they're all about the mugwort, and mm. and you know, people can't keep it in stock. Like at Raven and Crone, they can't keep it in stock. And it's so funny because it's just a big old honking weed. It's everywhere. I've got yeah. some smudge sticks. I, I could sell them. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I've got you, some, could do, uh, <laughs> you could do a, ba a bale of mugwort. I mean, Ellen had mugwort take over her garden. Like, oh, the, whole, yeah. the whole garden was full of mugwort. So there's a there's a ton up there. It's a, it's a very successful uh, plant. How's that? Very successful. <laughs> Don't have to have much of a green thumb. It'll do its own thing. <laughs> no. So um, you can you can train yourself to do that. I mean, I, I have had instances where it was uh, truly prophetic. So when I was in graduate school, maybe before either of you were born in the 80s, uh, someone tried to shoot Ronald Reagan. Well, I dreamed it about three days before it happened. And I woke up going, Oh my God, somebody, somebody shot the president. Oh my gosh, somebody, and, and I turned on uh, the radio, turned on the TV, and there were no news reports. And I thought, well, surely if he had like gotten hurt or killed, it would be everywhere. Well, it wasn't anywhere. And my, my two roommates got up and, and I said, did, did you hear somebody tried to shoot Reagan? And we all hated Reagan. So, you know, we weren't, but just so upset. Um, and they were like, Do you, are you crazy? Nobody tried to shoot Reagan. Three days later, somebody tried to shoot Re Reagan. Wow. And then I was like, I was like a nine day wonder. It's like, I even dreamed that. Oh my God, Sunday night dreamed that. It was so weird. <laughs> so I've had, I've had that happen a few times. So Sometimes I wonder how much of, how much of uh, human power is in our sub subconscious that if we were all more capable of tapping into that right. sleeping mind, what would we find? I don't know. Might be scary, well, well, but it might be useful. They say, how, mu how much of our brain do we not use? Or we don't know how it's used. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's a big chunk. You also, another thing, um, I guess as a final word on the magic side of the book, you, you bring up scrying a bit in that in the book. And um, it's <laughs> something that I only had recently started scratching the surface of interest in on account of a dream that I had. Um, and I think you gave one example in the book, but I know that there's like a lot of different ways it can be done. So I was mm -hmm. uh, curious if you could go a little bit more into detail uh, of what scrying is, like why do people do it? Why might they employ it? And what are some of the ways that it's done? Is it something that you incorporate into your practice regularly at all? Um, I don't know that I'd say regularly, but I, but I do do it. Um, once you have trained yourself to do scrying, it's hard not to scry. For instance, uh, when we all could be in places, I used to read tarot at Raven and Crone on Merriman 
on Tuesdays. And they had a beautiful display of crystal balls. And I couldn't look in, the, in that direction because my eye would immediately start scrying them. So mm -hmm. scrying happens uh, in two different ways. Uh, sometimes you, are, you, will, you will see an image that foretells something that will happen. And sometimes you will see an image that is at a distance from where you are. And I don't think those are different techniques. I just think that it depends on what you are needing at the time or what you're looking for at the time. Um, it requires you to look into a reflective surface and to see what's beyond the surface of the reflection. Now I'm going to tell you what that means. Um, I love to use, and I think I write about it in this book, the scrying pan, which is a small cast iron skillet. So you fill that with water and then you darken the lights in the room and put a, a candle or some other soft light at a distance, at a foot or so away. So there's a, a little bit of a reflection. And then if you're someone like me who has glasses, you can take your glasses off so that your vision is slightly blurred. And then, um, then you are kind of glancing obliquely at the reflective surface and you just wait there, rest there while, while the images float up to you. Um, if you don't wear glasses and have terrible vision like I do, you can squint your eyes or do that thing that we did several years back with the magic eye pictures. Oh yeah. You kind of look at them sideways. So uh -huh. you can do that. That's a good way to start to scry. But uh -huh. once you've trained your eye to do it, it becomes pretty easy. And um, a story I will tell you is that I was, uh, I decided a witch should be able to scry a crystal ball. Cause I mean, why not? <laughs> and, and I was doing this fundraiser where we were reading tarot and doing other stuff. And so I brought the ball and polished it all up. This is when I was really first starting it as a practice. And this woman sat down and I said, ah, oh, would you like the tarot, which I'm very good at? Or would you like the crystal ball, which I'm just learning? And she said, oh, crystal ball every time. So I did the whole thing and I started telling her this whole this room came into view. And so I was telling her about the room and she said, oh yeah, no, that's my living room. And I said, oh, okay. And there's a, a dog and there are two cats. And she said, yeah, where are the cats? And I said, well, one of them is kind of near the dog over on the other part of the room, but the other one's in one of the chairs. And she said, which one is in the chairs? And I described, I described the cat to her and she got really mad and she said, he knows he can't get in that chair. I am going to whip him when I get home. So I, I got her poor kitty in trouble. So I couldn't tell her anything about the future. But she said, I'm, I'm amazed that you could see my room so clearly. So sometimes it happens like that. For me, I mean, if I'm doing divinatory work, I'm going to use cards or I'm going to use my intuition. Um, because I'm just, I'm not adept with scrying, but you can learn all sorts of things with scrying. And I, I highly recommend it as a practice, even as a meditative practice. You know, a lot of people in the West, we're not good with 
seated meditation, clearing all the fuzz out of your brain, that sort of stuff. So this kind of meditation can help us, can help us. Gives a, gives a little, gives you a little bit to focus on, I yeah, guess, just enough yeah. to focus our Western loud brains on. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, and I, I just looked over, I've got my uh, coffee press. It's right up here by the kettle. And I glanced over at it and with the light, the way it is, it's glancing off the top of the silver coffee press and I started scrying it. So really, it's pretty, it's pretty easy to do. You just got to train your brain, train your eye and your brain together. And you saw a white cat sitting in a chair. <laughs> oh, there's the kitty. There's the kitty. Oh, can you see him? Yes, he's good. being so quiet and good. What's the kitty's yeah. name? Eugene. 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 Yes, he's Eugene. a silly. He's, he's got a very a lot of a sense of humor, but he was being bad, so I had to grab him and and he's telling me it's nap time or past nap time because it's my like nap time. But do you have you have to nap with him? Well, I've been um, I have to nap when I go to work because um, I work weird. I get up early and then I work at in the evening, at night, uh, but so yeah. I take a nap in the middle, but he's worked me into his routine. So That's he's like, job. yeah, so he's like, okay, it's not time, let's go. And I'm like, but I'm not working today, so we're not taking a nap. <laughs> and that, that part is lost to him, so I. Yeah. And Eugene's like, what now, what'd you say? No, yeah. we're talking about that. We're taking a nap. Soon, I mean, as soon as you get finished with whatever this crap it is you're doing now, we're taking a nap, lady. Not well, maybe important. feed me first. Yeah, he, yeah, exactly. He's been fed, so the next part, the Marx part is convince him of that. You know, that's the second. You know, attention. He's he's definitely he's definitely in charge. He's, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's he's their a, job. Keeps us on our schedule. <laughs> so, um, we have not been able to read all of your books, which we had really would like to read. Um, so, what would be a good place for, you know, someone who's, because um, you've written several books, mm -hmm. to start? reading your books um and then maybe you could give like a brief overview of each of each one um because sure. um at this point i have six books and the last one isn't quite out yet but my i would start excuse me i would start if you are looking for um the folk magic stuff start with the first book Staubs and ditchwater and that mm -hmm. really is a primer it's just some basic information about the culture and about some of the practices that come out of the culture. And then, as I said earlier, the second book, which is called Asphidity and Madstones, um, that book goes into a little more depth about some of these practices. Um, and yeah, and I add some new things in too. My third book is called Embracing Willendorf, and it's about it's, the subtitle is A Witch's Way of Loving Your Body to Health and Fitness. And no, it's not Witch's Weight Watchers. It's about listening to your body and giving your body what it needs. 
And the funny thing about that book is that of all the books I've written, that one has sold the fewest copies. But it is the book that has touched the most people. So that mm. people will read that book and then they, they contact me and they go, this book changed my life. And it didn't matter how many copies it sells when that's the response. Because yeah. I, mean, I don't write to sell copies, I write to teach. If, um, if I'm remembering correctly, Willendorf is the uh, the famous goddess statue, right? Of the, yes. of the very voluptuous. She's very voluptuous. <laughs> yeah. So um, that, that's a very nice title. Yeah. Yeah, and and it's all about loving your body at whatever shape it is, and and by loving it, i.e., you, because we that's another thing we love to do in Western culture is to separate who we are from our physical selves which is just, I mean, that's one reason we are so unhealthy. Mm -hmm. So that's what that book is about. And then the fourth book came out in 2018 and it's called Earthworks, Ceremonies in Tower Time. And I've been talking for 20 years, I guess, maybe more about this concept that I believe we are living through the times when many of these uh, long, held toxic top-down systems are finally failing and it's up to us to recalibrate ourselves and put new things in place rather than doing what we've done for thousands and thousands of years which is go oh but the person on top of the pyramid that's the problem so we just need a better quality human being on top of that pyramid then everything's going to be fine the, the problem is the structure. The problem is not who's on the top of it. The problem is that all the rest of us are on the bottom of it. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a book that outlines my concept about tower time. And then the second half of the book is all rituals and ceremonies to help be resilient and to help walk us through the times we're living in. Awesome. Um, and then the next book is this book, Roots, Branches, and Spirits, mm -hmm. which is... Yeah. Um, is all about folkways and witchery. And I've done something in this book I've never done before, but the end of it is a series of ghost stories. And they're not made up out of my head ghost stories. They're the ghosts that we encountered when we were kids. Or uh, in the case of the angel crown, it's a concept that I encountered that I wove a story around. And then in the fall is coming the yeah. book that is really is such a heart book for me, heart, H-E-R-T, H-E-A-R-T book. And um, it is called Seasons of a Magical Life. It's, um, it's a book on permaculture, it's a book on animism, it is a book on animism as a political and economic force. Um, it's a book about following the cycle, of the seasons of the agricultural year in a way that feels natural and wholesome that can be utilized whether you live on a three acre farm or you live in a condo in the middle of, uh, of nice. uh, Raleigh. Yeah, and it's, uh, I, lo I, love, I love this book, maybe a little too much, uh, <laughs> but, I'm, but the, it's coming from Red Wheel Wiser books, and they've given me some extraordinary editors 
who have whipped that book into shape and made it really readable and usable. And that will be out beginning of August. You can pre-order it now mm -hmm. from Malaprops, which is our local indie bookstore, malaprops.com. And uh, when the books come in, I will sign all of those pre-orders. I did that nice. for Roots, Branches, and Spirits and uh, and signed like almost 300 of them that wow. were, that were pre-ordered. So people really took advantage of that. And also if you got seasons, I mean, yeah, if you got Roots, Branches, and Spirits and it isn't signed, you can contact me either through Facebook or through my website, which is myvillagewitch.com, and I will send you uh, an adhesive book plate that is signed that can go on the front of your book. I'll also be doing that for Seasons of a Magical Life because there's so many people cool. so far away that are yeah. just, you know, they're not going to order from Malaprops. So, but uh, I, I, I am going to put the link. Oh, I am going to put the link to okay. um, yeah. to to Malaprop. So, um, if you even if you do live far away and you wanted to support our, you know, awesome local bookstore, that would be cool. Um, I mean, everything is on Amazon as well. I always recommend people go to their indie first, even if they have to order it. Um, I mean, I appreciate that it's available in many, many, many places. But um, And I do want to say this proudly, that the Roots, Branches, and Spirits sold out at the publisher on the day it was released. Wow, that's awesome. So there were a lot of pre-orders, and it was out of stock for almost a month. But it's now it's back in stock now. And you can still order that one through Malaprops, and I will sign it if you want. I was up there last week signing book. I love doing that. We um we both got signed copies. So um, and then I and then I got another copy just so I could highlight. I was just like I just <laughs> so I could underline and and I was um oh, wow. <laughs> so I don't have like a, a huge a lot of time for reading, but I work in a job where I can listen to headphones, I can listen to whatever I want as I'm working. So I was really excited mm -hmm. that the Rich Branches and Spirits had an audio, an audible version, and also yeah. seasons of the seasons of a magical life yeah. also is going to have yeah. an audio version. So, and usually what I like to do is just buy the uh, book, the physical book, anyway, and then listen to the audio. Book, so. Double dipping. Hey, how does she uh, sound? That narrator. She sounds good. Yeah. Good, good. Yeah. I tried to get them to let me do it because I used to do voiceover work a lot, but they said, no, no, we've got somebody. Back off, writer. Nice. I mean, I would have, I would have liked you as well, but uh, you know, but she's, she's, she's fine. She's, she's good. Um, I think she, from hearing you talk and hearing her talk, I, I feel like the sentiment comes across. Good. So, That's good. Um. So the one thing I wanted to ask is about, um, I've been seeing you post on Facebook some prototypes of what looks like maybe a tarot slash oracle deck in the works. Well, I'm, I'm crazy. I am crazy. <laughs> I do not have time. It is gardening season. I do not have time for this. However, um, I had mentioned before we do this podcast called Weird Mountain Gals, and we got this wild hair. It's been over a month ago. Well, you know, we could do a little bitty divination deck. That'd be fun. 
uh-huh it'd be fun so i and we got all you know how it is the energy just goes and you're like oh yeah no 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 i can totally do blah, blah. and it was going to originally be 13 cards and okay. then i started writing stuff down i was like no 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 i'm going to need to do 24 cards alicia i'm sorry i gotta do 24 cards so i'm doing the prototypes now i'm gonna meet with a printer later this week or sometime next week to see what it's going to cost we're trying to decide if we want to do one of those crazy crowd crowdfunding things or if it's just something we're just going to pay for and then sell to pay. i don't know what's going to happen but it's it's just one of those crazy crazy things i've been reading cards y'all for 53 <sighs> years wow I started with plain old playing cards, but I've, I've been reading tarot for probably 50 of the 53, maybe 48, something like that. Anyway, a long, long, long time. And it's just, it's a tool that I'm really comfortable with. So it's been fun to draw these pictures. And um, when I told Alicia, I'm a, I'll, I'll draw the pictures. And she, she had no idea I could draw. So she didn't know what to expect. And she thought she was going to put together sort of you know these internet images sort of things and make it really kind of clean and sleek and she just didn't have any idea that i would she was like what but you're gonna do the drawing so then i sent her the first prototype and she was like well i mean they look weird but we are weird mountain gals so i guess i don't <laughs> so that's the other thing and i'm also writing a play i began my writing oh, life wow. as a playwright well i began my writing life writing bad poetry as a teenager that was really yeah. therapy yeah don't tell me y'all didn't do it because i know you did oh yeah every teenager bad poetry oh my heart is broken no one will ever understand me here is some really crappy poetry about it yeah and when you have a name like byron you have to be really careful about the quality of poetry you write oh, right, so i right. tend to not do much poetry so i began life as a playwright and i'm working with a friend of mine Brian Hinky to do a, a musical version of a Midsummer Night's Dream. Oh, nice. So I will use a little bit of Shakespeare, but mostly it's the Shakespeare characters. And that is in the very beginning stages. And because I don't have anything better to do, I also am working on another book of my heart, uh, which is about the Appalachian condition right now, the regional condition. It's not a magic book. It's not a folklore book. It's called The Ragged Wound, Tending the Soul of Appalachia. And it's about the opioid crisis and cleaning up after coal mining and what comes next. And it's interviews with a lot of regional people about nice. what their dreams are for the region and what plans we can do. And a lot about the Appalachian diaspora. Yeah, that, that well, sounds really great. Note, um, in regards to Appalachian studies or folk magic, are there any other books um, outside of your own that, that you've found useful that you would recommend to other people? Well, I always like to take people directly to the Foxfire books and down to the, um, the Foxfire Center down in Rayburn, Georgia. That's always a good place to, to start. There's some wonderful older books that are less folkloric and and more uh reporting so it's mm -hmm. like things gathered by folklorists and those are good too there's there is not a lot 
about Appalachian folklore, and some of it is just not accurate. This, um, I mean, not folklore, but folk magic. Um, this, these practices came down to us through a Protestant Christian filter. So they weren't sort of hidden pagans and hidden witches doing these things. They were, they were Methodists and Baptists and Church of God in Christ. So a lot of the newer stuff likes to, uh, likes to bring in some Afro-Caribbean influences that just weren't, they weren't big here. I mean, I'm not saying they weren't enslaved people because heaven knows there were, but there wasn't critical mass enough to have a huge effect on the folk magic. And certainly the idea of, of African deities or Catholic deities, that's, that's just not something that is typical of the region. One of the, some research that I'm doing now and have been for about five years is tracking the roots of Appalachian folk magic. So that has taken me up to meet with some Pennsylvania Dutch people, the Deitch community up there near Philadelphia. And I spend, I have spent a month at a time in the border regions between England and Scotland, learning what the spells are there so I can compare and contrast. So that's my awesome. academic work. Right well, I think we're going to end this here. And I'd really like to thank Byron for such an amazing chat. Um, so much really cool stuff that we've, we've talked about today. Um, yeah, thank you for your time and helping welcome people into uh, this lovely region of ours. Well, it has been such a pleasure to hang out with y'all. And next time we do this, we are going to be maybe post-COVID, maybe, fingers crossed, and then we'll just all get together. It'll be great. That, that Thank sounds you amazing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, guys. So um, thank you for joining us, and um, we, will, we will see you uh, next time. So um, all of Byron's links are in the description. Please check out. Please check her out. Please check out her books, and we'll talk to everyone later. Bye.